Advent, Christmas, is especially a great time for children. And I noticed, and I have for you this morning, a report from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, in the Old Testament, the priests were the help officers of the tribe. And so I want you and your children to be healthy. And the title of the article is, Holiday Anxiety Overwhelms Adolescence. And the, the, the gist of it is that having to wait so long for Christmas is causing anxiety and distracting and debilitating stress for children. They said, and, and then they've got some recommendations. For example, one of the biggest problems is buying presents, you know, like on Black Friday after Thanksgiving. And then instead of giving them to the children, they're being wrapped up in attractive, eye-catching wrap and put under the tree. And so for a month, the children have to uh, go through the anxiety and stress of anticipating what's in that box. They said they even do things like shake the box and try to figure out what's in it. And um, th there's some um, recommendations, you know, that 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 they have here. Let's see how it's warm on down over here. If there was really anything on this paper, and this is a true report, this is what it would say. Begin Christmas in November. Don't wait until December. Don't delay. Deliver the presents as soon as you buy them so they don't have to wait. Don't delay. Serve fruitcake at Thanksgiving because that's what you always eat at Christmas so that they don't have to wait. At the end of the year, plan next year to start earlier. Don't delay. The article even said that it used to be that, what was the term they used? Uh, delayed gratification used to be a sign of maturity in adulthood but it's reached the point where delayed gratification is causing so much stress and anxiety. It's overwhelming, so we need to move more toward immediate gratification. So give those presents as soon as you buy them. Start saying Merry Christmas in November. Don't wait till January, uh, December. And serve fruitcake at Thanksgiving. Oh, there you go. You're welcome very much. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Part of the anticipation, it may be stressful, it may cause anxiety, but more often than not, it causes enthusiasm and excitement. I bet some of you have children or had children or grandchildren that actually were so excited about Sunday morning and getting presents from under the tree that they got up early, you know, 9 o'clock. Eight, seven, five. Oh my goodness! 
what do you do with rugrats that early in the morning? <laughs> well, don't you see the problem you're causing? Did, this, did any of you ever do that? Did any of you ever get up early to go down and see what was under the tree? So you seem to be at odds with the American Academy of Pediatrics as faked by your pastor. You seem to be saying there's actually good and joy in delayed gratification and anticipation. Is that what you're saying? Okay, I'll, I'll take that report back to the, to the experts. Well, see, that's what Advent is. I've given you something on the front of the bulletin, just your whole right there explanation of Advent. It's a Latin word, comes from Perugia. Uh, it's anticipation. It's looking forward. You know who invented Advent? God did. Now, I was in a church one time, and I was talking with a pastor, and I was sharing how Christ had changed my life. And he said, we don't talk about Jesus here in this church. We talk about God. And I said, so I'm going to talk about God. I asked the guys in the sound booth back there if they'd give me some reverb. <laughs> so when I said God, it would come out, God, da, 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 da. And you would think I had a great voice. But God invented Advent. He invented it in the Old Testament, and he used the prophets. We lit the prophet candle. And that candle is going to be lit every Sunday, and when we get down here to the Christmas candle, it's going to be burned lower than the others because that's what Advent is. In fact, God, throughout the Old Testament with the prophets, kept looking forward and teasing the people and telling them something is coming, something big. It started in Genesis when God told Eve that you're going to bear a son, and Satan is going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush Satan's head, the serpent's head. It started way back in Genesis. And then all the prophets and the Psalms and everything, in fact, every page of the Old Testament, kept looking forward with types and pictures you know, the spotless Lamb of God, the shed blood, it just went on and on and on. There was a rock in the wilderness with the Israelites, and it says that rock was Christ in the New Testament. But they couldn't figure out what was coming. In Isaiah, he talks in one place about a conquering king and another place about a suffering servant. And Peter said, I mean, these guys in the Old Testament were scratching their head and studying this, trying to figure out what's going on. How can this be? God deliberately created a present with beautiful wrapping and a bow and put it under the tree and said, I'm going to give you 2,000 years to think about it so that when the present unwraps, your joy will be great. That's what Advent is. Now, they were looking forward to what we now know was the first coming of Christ as the suffering servant, the babe in a manger, the fully incarnate Son of God, fully God and fully man, two natures, one person. Looking back, and we now have 2,000 years of church history and hardworking theologians, we even invented a word for it called Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, they're looking forward. Now, with all that 
foundation behind us, we look back, that's called memory and experience, and to the first coming of Christ, and then we look forward to the second coming. He promised he would come. The angels promised he would return. The promise promised he, prophets promised he would return. And here's what we figure out. If he came the first time as a lowly child, fully man, born under the law, born under Roman oppression, was never able to marry and have a family, was rejected and crucified, if he came to fulfill those duties, do you think he's willing to return as the conquering king with a shout and with angels? Sure he will. That's what he's waiting for now. So we say if he came the first time, we are sure that he will come the second time. So we look back and we look forward. That's what Advent is. But see, we practice Advent every time that we open God's Word. And we practice especially the first Sunday of every month when we have the Lord's table. You see what it says across the front of that table? What does it say? This do in remembrance of me. Not just to remember what he did, but remember what he's going to do. Not just remember that he came, but remember that he's coming. And so we get excited when we remember him, and again, we get more excited when we look forward to it. You know what, what, what that's called? That's called hope. That's called hope. Paul said, now by these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. If you want to learn about faith, you go to Hebrews, what is it, 11? It has this whole definition of faith and examples. If you want to learn about love, you go to 1 Corinthians 13. There's a whole chapter. What chapter do you go to to learn about hope, if it's one of the three? There isn't any particular chapter. In fact, it's nowhere defined and everywhere discussed in the Bible. But I'm glad you came this morning. Saturday morning, you get gourmet coffee. This morning, if you're a man, this morning, you get a special treat. You're going to have a little lesson in hope. It's right there in your bulletin. In fact, there's a definition. Look at what it says. Hope equals desire plus expectation and joy from both. Desire plus expectation. Do you get joy from desire? I've shared with you, I've been honest and transparent with you that I'm addicted to chocolate. And it's hard to give up because the desire gives joy. Just thinking about almond, peanut, almond M&M's just gives me great joy. Desire. And I have a reasonable expectation I might get one if Sandy lets me have some. Once a month, <laughs> once a month she lets me have some M&Ms. But it's always a little small bag. <laughs> she started that when I turned 50. Uh, desire plus expectation. Now, 
If you increase your desire, that will increase your hope. If you increase your expectation, that will increase your hope. Listen to what it says in Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope. So if you have hope, you have joy. And that's what Advent is. Well, let's talk about this now. Let's talk about expectation. Let's talk about the probability of attaining your expectation. Because it could be low, medium, or high, right? What if there's low probability of attaining your expectation? What's that called? You desire it, but you have low probability that you're going to get what you want. That's called wishing. That's a mere wish. Low expectation, that's just a wish. You buy lottery tickets, that's just a wish. Low probability. But what if it's a higher probability? That's called hope. If you have desire plus a expectation with a high probability of getting your expectation, that's called hope. Well, what if you have the highest probability? You know it. That's called confidence. Wish, hope, confidence. So as you look forward to the return of Christ, first of all, do you desire it? Lord, come soon, but wait until I get married. Lord, come soon, but wait until I get my inheritance. Do you desire it? Is it something that you look forward to? Is there a medium, low, or high probability of Christ returning? See, the more time you spend in Scripture and remembering the greater your desire will grow and the higher your expectation, that will increase hope from wish to hope to confidence, and there will be the greater joy. See how that works now? You got that? Define for me desire without expectation. I use a D word there. Desire without expectation. I really want something, but I'll never get it. That's called despair. Desire without expectation is despair. Well, what's the opposite of that? Expectation without desire. In other words, it's going to happen, but I don't want it to happen. Dread. Despair and dread. You see how important hope is in our lives? It can go from joy to despair and dread. Well, a strong desire plus a confident expectation equals assurance. Paul said, I'm assured of this very thing, that he to whom I have committed the gospel before I die will keep it, protect it, until he returns. I'm confident. Faith and experience increase probability. And that's what Advent is. That's why the Jews spent so much time rehearsing and remembering what God had done for them. It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, 
he will do for he can do will do for you see how that works so they kept reminding themselves of what God had done and that increased their desire and their expectation and that's what Advent is so during these four Sundays of Advent this season we're looking back and we're looking forward we're reminding what God did and what God is going to do and we're going to look at uh, Joseph this morning and next week Mary this morning Joseph and hope shattered next week Mary and hope fulfilled then I forget what we're doing after that what are we doing Nick's doing what I got it written down In fact, I got real excited because uh, I was researching this, and all of Charles Spurgeon's, the great 19th century English preacher in London, you can get all his sermons free. They're just absolutely amazing. And I found one, and the title of it is something like The Role of Remembrance in Strengthening Hope, in the Grace of Hope. And I printed it out, and it's like a little... Almond in the M and M on my desk. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. I am so looking forward to that. In fact, uh, I was talking with one of the other IPM interim pastors that I coach, and he said he told me what he did for Thanksgiving. He said, "Well, what did you do?" And I said, "We stayed right here." You know, well, didn't you miss out on Thanksgiving with your family? Well, we figured out by the time we drive home and work on the house and run around with all the kids and drive back we're just worn out and, we, and this is a busy season so i said uh on friday we went down to the inner harbor found a great restaurant someone had uh put us in that restaurant with uh, a gift certificate overlooking the water and we sat there for about two hours and we remembered past thanksgivings you know, uh, memory works great, people. Memory is the fulfillment. C.S. Lewis says this in uh, Out of the Out of Silent Planet, one of his uh, fictional uh, space uh, novels. And I should have brought it and read it to you. And the, there's a space creature there, a Martian. And he's saying, when you meet someone, it might be five minutes. But then when you remember it, it starts growing and building. He said, memory is part of the experience of anything that happens in your life. In fact, it is usually the bigger, better part. Because you might meet someone for five minutes, and it might change your life. And so that's what we do in communion. That's what we do in Advent. Well, let's see how this uh, broke out here in Joseph's life and illustrate it. Joseph and shattered hope. What was Joseph's future hope? And you have that for you in uh, Matthew chapter 1. And it says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married, betrothed to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. But Joseph didn't know this. All he knew is she was pregnant. Her husband was a righteous man 
And I give you in your outline, it's interesting, the different translations say he was a just man, he was a righteous man, he was faithful to the law. That's what just and righteous mean. Sinful means breaking the law. Sin is defined as a breaking and not keeping the law. So Joseph kept the law. He was righteous. He was just. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind, he was thinking about divorcing her quietly. Folks, Joseph is one of the most noble people in Scripture. Because here's a man of the first century, a Jew. He's descended from King David. But he's living in uh, genteel poverty. He's a Jew, part of the chosen people. He's descended from royalty. But he's poor. We know that because when they gave the offering for their first child, instead of a, a bullock, a small bull, or even a lamb, they gave two turtle doves because that's all they could afford, and the law had room for poor people. And that's what they gave. Well, why was he poor? Well, because he had uh, avaricious religious leaders that were taking a lot of their money to keep the temple running, according to the law. And then they had been conquered and occupied by the Romans who charged them taxes to keep the, pay the army that occupied and oversaw them. You put all that together, it came to about 60% of your income. But they were able to continue their religion and worship, and they were able to make a living. And Joseph was a carpenter, and he had one hope in life, the way every Jewish man did, to find the perfect bride to have the perfect family and to pass on what? The hope of the Messiah. So if it didn't come in his lifetime, his children or his grandchildren might see it because they had that hope and that gave them joy. And he had found the perfect girl. She was young. She was beautiful. She was descended from royalty, King David. And not only that, she loved God. And she was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We'll see that next week when we see the song that she wrote when she found out she was expecting the Messiah. But the way God decided to do it was secretly through a work of the Holy Spirit before they got married. Well, why before? Because it was important that Jesus be born of a virgin. It had been prophesied and that's what happened. But when you do things in secret, people assume the worst. So all, Mo, all Joseph knew was this girl who was betrothed to him, which at the time was the same as a marriage contract. It had to be broken. You had to actually break it and divorce it. Had gone and been intimate with another man and gotten pregnant. Can you imagine the shattering of that dream? He thought he'd found the perfect girl, and she betrayed everything that a righteous, just, living by the law person would do. Can you imagine the shame for Joseph in that community? 
in all of Israel. Can you imagine what it did to his pride? In fact, they lived with this 30 years later when the Pharisees were trying to attack Jesus. One of the lines they used on him was, who gave you the right to speak this way? At least we know who our father is. 30 years later. And Mary lived with that all her life. And Joseph lived with that. And Jesus lived with that. She couldn't tell Joseph, what are you going to say? That's quite a story you're making up to cover what you did. And so he had the law to tell him what he could do. Stoning. Her and the man. That's it. He didn't do that. Somehow he was able to overcome his pride and his shame and his broken heart and his shattered dream and do the right and noble thing. Because her husband was righteous and did not want to expose her to public shame, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. And while he was thinking about this, he had a dream. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. A lot of things there, folks. He had a future hope, and that hope was shattered. But he found the grace to do the right thing, what we would call right, the noble thing, the gracious thing. Where did he get that fountain of grace from? From hope. Because he was hoping in the coming of the Messiah. He was hoping and trusting God's promise that there would be a Messiah and that everyone would be blessed. His hope was shattered, but his faith was not. His hope was in a young woman. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You shall not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His faith, like an anchor, had gone below the surface, deep down, and found a rock. And that rock was Christ. And the anchor held. The anchor held. In fact, that's described here in Hebrews chapter 6. God made his promise to Abraham. Was that verse 13? And that is, all people shall be blessed through you and your children and your child, your son. And Jesus was a child of Abraham. I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said. And put an end to all argument. 
uh, I've seen people swear with their hand on the Bible. I've heard someone say, I swear on my mother's grave. I actually saw a movie one time where the man said, I swear on the eyes of my children. What he's saying is, if I break my oath, may they go blind. People swear by something great so that you have their word and what they swore by. Now listen to what it says. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, and which is it impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Take hold of the hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high price, high priest. Hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, not in a person, but in a promise. That's how hope strengthens and how joy is produced. Desire plus, what is it? Expectation. And if you increase the desire and then increase the expectation that it will be happening, that's how the anchor grabs that rock. And it says here in Hebrews 6, the end of Hebrews 6, God swore by himself because there was nothing greater. So you had the promise of God, that's number one, that's what it says. And then you had what the oath was on, which is God himself. He swore by himself because there was nothing greater. So he promises and then swears on his own self. That's double promise. And it says, so that God did this so that by two unchangeable things, we who have fled to take hold of the hope may be greatly encouraged. And that's what happened to Joseph. In fact, it says back here in Romans uh, chapter 15, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so Moses didn't put his faith, excuse me, Jake, uh, Joseph didn't put his faith in Mary. He didn't even put it in himself. The arm of flesh shall fail you. You dare not trust your own. He put it in God and his promise. And he said, no matter what is happening to me now, even though my hope is shattered, that anchor steals holes in the promise of God, all things are going to work together to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And the anchor held. And now we're able to read in the midst of shattered hope, crushed pride, and mounting shame. Joseph did what was noble, what was right. How do you think Mary felt about that? Now that's a good story. 
but it gets better. After he considered this, an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him named Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua. You see J-E in there, Jehovah, saves, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill the word of the Lord in Isaiah. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. You know, when Mary heard about the virgin birth, she said, how can this be? And it was explained to her. When, 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 when uh, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, heard about it, he said, that can't be. I'm old and my wife's old. You know what Joseph said? Nothing. <laughs> He said, okay. He obeyed. That's what it says. That's what it says right there. When he, the Lord had commanded him, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Now look at that last sentence. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. Why not? So that it would be clear that Jesus was not Joseph's son. He was God's son. Interesting stuff, right? And he named him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And he had an anchor in God's promise of the Messiah, of Jesus the Savior. See, that's how hope works when it's anchored where it should be. Isaiah 49 says, those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Psalm 25.3 says, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Mary was not shamed. Joseph was not shamed. No one who puts their hope in God will ever be disappointed or put to shame. Amen? Amen. That is the testimony that we receive down through the ages. That's why we remember, as it says on the front of that table. That's why we light a prophecy candle. That's why we go through advent and celebrate delayed gratification because the longer we wait the more the anticipation grows and the greater is our joy will you join me this morning let's pray together father thank you for your promise of a messiah Thank you for the grace that you gave men and women down through history, even in the face of unimaginable challenges, that they trusted you and your promise and therefore brought glory to you. And they went through their lives, even with shattered hope, but they were not disappointed or shamed because you keep your promises. 
Father, will you give us a faith that goes down below the waves, deep down into the ocean, and grabs the solid rock of Jesus so that we might have hope, and from that hope, joy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.